0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, the 25th of April, and our special guest is Andreas Schleicher, who is at the OECD and has responsibility for the PISA uh, exam or assessment. Andreas, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: This show is a uh, special show in partnership with the Asia Society. Thanks so much to them and to Blackboard Collaborate for providing this environment. We have a number of worldwide virtual events, uh, peer-to-peer learning for educators uh, and interested parties. We have the School Leadership Summit in March. All of the recordings for that are up at schoolleadershipsummit.com. At ISTE, we hold a number of events, including all the unconference this year called Hack Education. You can find out more by going to ISTEUnplugged.com. And then this summer, a worldwide STEM conference sponsored by Hewlett-Packard. In the fall, our worldwide Future of Libraries conference in October, and then in November, the five-day, 24-hour day, Global Education Conference. More information at web20labs.com, and all of those events are free. Coming up on the interview show, John Hunter comes back to talk about his new book on World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements, Peter Gray on Free to Learn, both of those in the second week of May. Uh, Ernie Turner and Simona David on improving schools one community at a time. Um, really looking forward to that. Simona in Romania. Richardson on Why School, Franz Johansson on The Click Moment, a book probably most educators aren't reading, but I want to convince you to think about it. And then in June, Don Winkle on Student Entrepreneurship, and lots more coming up. All of the shows are recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and MP3 versions. They're all available at futureofeducation.com. Tuesday, we heard from Jim Popham on the truth about testing, great counterbalance or great connection with this show. Vivian Stewart and Posse Solberg, before that, uh, talked to us about, uh, again, international lessons in education, Elliot Washer, and Charles Modjowski on Leaving to Learn. Lots there, hopefully something that interests you. So this is a chance for those of you in the studio audience to indicate where you're listening from. Click on the star icon, the second one down to the left of the map, and then click on the map. I'm still in India, but I'm flying back today. I'm in Delhi again after a fascinating trip. Australia, please feel free to keep putting notes in the chat, letting us know where you are, the time, the temperature, anything else you want to tell us about your circumstances. There is a mighty bell space. For today's interview, My Bell is a sort of content continuation, content curation space. I'll put the link in the chat if you want to keep the conversation going after the show. You can go to this link. It's also in my blog post. Andreas, in watching your presentations and thinking about the uh, program for international student assessment at the PISA, um, I'm struck by the amount of raw data there must be. And not only that, then I'm completely impressed by your ability to have that data relatively at your fingertips. Is this just a natural talent that you have?
1: Well, and, and, and lots of experience and lots of time invested in this, I think. You get used to this. and. Um, some of the data you know, just don't change very fast. That's also one of the features of education. Progress is often very, very slow. So you don't have to memorize new things very often. Well, you do a great <laughs> job
0: with it. And I, I've seen you speak in person. I was at a conference at Stanford a year or two ago, and so you speak in person. And and I have to say, you do a really good job of bringing out just enough data to, to really be helpful to those who are watching. But we also recognize there's
1: probably a lot behind all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things that we have learned is that um, you need a lot of data, and data from different perspectives so that you can triangulate. We collect data from students, about schools, from teachers, about at the system level. And it is only when you can look at education from many different perspectives that you begin to sort of understand what's going on. And that's that's really very, very important. Um, One of the greatest risks of the use of data is really to just take data from one single perspective and so believe that's the truth. You know, I mean, you ask students about disciplinary climate in the classroom, and they tell you one story. You ask principals the same question, they might tell you quite a different story. And it's the differences in the stories that really tell you a lot about discipline.
0: It seems like there's also this kind of commitment to just having a lot, a lot of data available and open. I think at one pl- in one talk I heard you give it, you called it radical openness. This is a part of the strategy, right? Not necessarily draw all the conclusions, but to make the data available?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I do think that's actually fundamental that we give empower people to analyze and use the data to uh, to answer the questions they are having rather than sort of have something can. And uh, we put a lot of emphasis on this. We, uh, Try to make our data the micro level you basically you go on the Pisa website and you can find every student's record who's ever tested who was ever tested in Pisa. You can see the answer they gave to every individual task item, of course it's anonymized, but basically it allows the individual user to go into the micro level data and uh, do the analysis from their perspectives. You know there are different ways of analyzing the data and it's again the multiplicity of methods. You know? One of the things that actually we learn a lot from is we often put the software or we usually put the software code that we we use to program uh, our analysis on the web. And you get a lot of good ideas and suggestions from people who do things differently.
0: Um, was there a desire for this test to actually precipitate change or just to document what was taking place?
1: I think the ambition has always been to, by providing data to policymakers, to practitioners, to actually uh, change the practices. And you know, what what Pisa has really done, it is quite pro- a mirror for you, in which you can see yourself in the light of what other education systems, other schools show as possible. And that in itself is very powerful. You know. Um, we all believe that we are unique. You know, we believe our education systems are unique. The kind of cultural context in which we operate is unique. And once you actually start to see how education operates in different systems, you can actually see what's possible. You can see, for example, I mean, we grow up with the idea that in education that, you know, social background shapes learning outcomes. And yeah, that's true, but it's true to a very different extent in different education systems. You can see some that are a lot better in moderating social inequalities than others are. And, I, and again, it's seeing those kinds of differences. You know, we have never aspired to telling people what they need to do in education. But we, we tell them what everybody else is, has been doing and with what success. And that's often a very, very powerful learning experience for people at the policy level, at the practitioner level. And that's always been our ambition. I mean, just documenting how the world is uh, doesn't make the world better.
0: It also seems like we're at a very interesting period of time, sort of a transformation from manufacturing resource economies to economies that depend on the kinds of things that come out in education. There seems to be an awareness of the importance of this topic built into what you're doing, right?
1: Well, absolutely. You know, I mean, if you think about the last uh, 10 years, 53% of basically the (coughs) growth that we have seen in the industrialized world has been driven by people having better skills. And that basically comes back to education. So I think uh, the link between the skills people have and the outcomes, the social and the economic outcomes that we see, has got tighter year after year, and that is certainly one important imperative for improvement. The other is that uh, we live in a global economy, and uh, the benchmark for success is no longer whether you are better than you were last year in an education system, but the benchmark for success today is the most advanced education system. You know, every education system has improved, so if you just look at national standards, we're all doing fine. But basically, the pace of change has been so different that the relative standing of, of nations has changed uh, very dramatically, and that is a very, very important insight.
0: So we had Posse Salberg on the show last week, and many of us are familiar with PISA because of the focus on Finland and because of the relative poor performance or, um, sup- sup- I guess, maybe lower ranking for the United States than, than we would have hoped. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about, for those who, who maybe don't know, about the details of the test and how it's unique in terms of what it's testing?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, PISA basically is a school test, it's a standardized test. But it looks at things like mathematics, science, and reading, problem solving, but it also puts a lot of emphasis on testing creative skills, uh, critical thinking among students. So many of the tasks are not simply multiple choice tasks. Uh, they require students to produce knowledge. Uh, they also, uh, it's not sufficient. You, you don't do well on PISA if you simply reproduce subject matter content. We ask students, we want to test to what extent they can extrapolate from what they know. Apply their knowledge in novel situations, things they have not seen so far. Some people say, well, that's unfair. You know, you test our kids with things that they haven't been taught in this same way. but you know, if you take that line, then you should consider life unfair. You know, basically, the the test of truth today is not do I remember what I learned in school that can make sense out of that and use that knowledge in novel situations. So that's basically the, the, the idea behind the test. It tests for subject matter knowledge, but in a way that requires students to use that knowledge in creative ways. And that's sort of the testing part then. In addition, we collect a lot of contextual data. We collect data from students, on ranging from metacognition up to their attitudes to schooling, their dispositions, their future aspirations, so that we get a sense of what actually the education system looks from the perspective of motivating, engaging young people in learning. We collect data from school principals on the learning environment at school, on their human capital at school, on the teaching force. We collect data at the level of the system to understand the resources invested in education, how they're used, how they're deployed, and, and so on, so and it's the, the putting all of these data together enables us to get a sense of how high-performing education systems look like, because I think what we are really proud of is that today we can account for about 85 percent of the performance variation, uh, variation of schools across the world. So um, that's sort of, we've not only sort of been able to measure performance, but we can more or less statistically account for a lot of the variability that you see across the world. And You're right, Finland is one of the top performing education systems, but what makes Finland really special, and you can see this with PISA, is that it is not only doing well on average, but it's producing success consistently. Like uh, there's only about 5% of the performance variation among students in Finland lying between schools and that tells you that really every school is doing well. And, and that's something that I think is, is is what you can see in those kinds of data. In the United States, you know, you have also high performing schools, but school performance is highly variable. It depends closely on the context from which students come, and the context in which schools are, and so it's less predictable.
0: So, oh, you yes. the the test is administered to those who are roughly 15 years old. Uh, the last test was in 2009, if I'm correct, with uh, 74 countries. The test is given every three years. Each student, mm-hmm. though, although there's uh, some number of hours of assessment material, each student, though, only takes, uh, only participates for two hours. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, yes. That's the individual student testing time. But we have about seven hours of testing of material that we test, but we just don't give every student the same booklet.
0: The post-cognitive questionnaire is additional material from them, but that's just for context and for other correlations.
1: That's correct. That's basically to explain uh, observed performance variation and to some extent also to measure things like self-concept, motivation, attitudes, um, metacognitive skills learning strategies and aspects that we believe are very important outcomes in education as well beyond the cognitive parts.
0: So I said the last test was in 2009. That's not actually correct. You had a test in 2012. Yeah, but the results have 2012?
1: not yet been published. The results will only be published on the 3rd of December this year. So the published data that we currently have is still from 2009.
0: I was interested to read that, uh, I'm traveling in India right now, that India, in fact, opted out of participating in the test. Was that rare?
1: Well, actually, in India, uh, we're progressing very slowly. Like, we have so far only two states that uh, took part in it. It's uh, Himal Pradesh and Tamil Nadu. Uh, We do have data for those states, but uh, we haven't really got much further. It's sort of... It's a very complex test. It has very stringent quality assurance mechanisms. It's uh, resource-intensive to administer, so we haven't yet got beyond those two states in India. The situation is similar in China. We started out with with one province in Shanghai, but we now have 12 provinces taking part in this, so progress has been more... Uh, more rapid in the case of China, but also there we don't yet have a complete geographic coverage, simply because these are very large countries, they're very complex countries, they are very fragmented education systems as well, so it's just taking a lot more time and effort. As,
0: as I read an article about this, India was concerned that there were social, socio-cultural disconnects with the test. Is that a criticism that you get often?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, this is an international test and it will never perfectly match anyone's education system. Uh, Sort of the aspiration of an international test can only be to be equally unfair to students, uh, but not exactly. I mean, if you would try to match what is taught in every education system, you would end up with a very stale, lowest common denominator of test questions. So we don't have that aspiration. We really try to sort of measure a domain like math, science, reading, problem-solving well in terms of what are the kind of cognitive constructs underlying that domain. So what are the the kind of content areas that we need to cover? What is the kind of um, the levels of performance that we'd like to measure? And we agree with this across countries and um, I think that's basically and, and quite intentionally we confront students often with material they haven't seen in school, but you know we did a very interesting experiment actually a couple of years ago, uh, because of this uh, this is always you know an argument you can make you know um in the country where I live in France, you know in two thousand when the first results from PIsa were collected um France didn't do so well, so there were a lot of people who were saying, you know if we are not number one, there must be something wrong with the test and actually that inspired us that we did an experiment. We basically asked every country to tell us which of the tasks correspond more closely to what is important to them nationally. And then we rescaled the data in a hundred different ways. Basically, we scored every country on everybody else's favorite tasks. And, you know, you would expect that the results might have been very different, but indeed they were not. They were actually highly consistent, which tells you that, you know, often our beliefs about what is special about our countries in terms of curricular approaches to education are not really borne out by those kinds of data. The data showed actually that whether you are in India or whether you are in France or whether you are in the United States, basically the choices that countries make regarding to what they teach, how they teach, uh, are not sort of the the test has been pretty invariant against those. Not totally. You know, you do see some differences. Usually countries do a little bit better when you score them on their favorite items. But it was actually not changing the rank order of countries significantly. Those countries that end up to be top performers remain on top of the league.
0: So one of the sort of most significant of findings I felt in looking at the material was this ability to change, right? That there was, um, aside from the specific practices, that there is actually an ability to change. But the test mm-hmm. is focused on three subject areas. And oftentimes, tests can have unintended consequences. People will focus only on the test of the areas. Is that something you worry about?
1: Yeah, I think that's always a risk when you test. But actually, if Pretty much minimize that risk by not targeting the test on a very narrow segment of instructional content. For example, you can't even say that PISA is a test for 10th graders because we are really looking at the cumulative yield of the subject like mathematics. So, uh, and we are looking for competency, we're not look- looking for a simple content knowledge. So, it's actually pretty hard to teach to a test like that, you know? You, need to, you, you do well on PISA if you're really good in mathematics, if you can do mathematical modeling, if you can think mathematically, if you can basically use, deal with um, hypotheses. And, uh, so that's, that's if, you, if, you, if you have those kinds of abilities, you come up well on PISA, but not because you're sort of trained in a very narrow way to learn a very specific set of algebraic equations. In that sense, I think PISA is less susceptible to that that danger than, than other kind of tests. But you're right. I mean, any test, you know, one criticism you can legitimately make, you know, math, science, and reading are very, very important subjects, but there are lots of other things that are important in school, whether it's music, whether it's art, and so on, that are not being part of the assessment to date. And that's, that's uh, surely an issue. But I should also say that you know, we started out with reading math and science, but we've got a lot beyond that. Like, we have, I think, now a really good test on problem-solving skills. In 2015, we're going to have the first test on interpersonal skills, which we also know are very important. So, PISA is not written in stone. It's actually trying to advance and broaden the range of competencies that it captures. And that's, I think, very, very important to make sure that we are not sort of just looking at what's easily measurable. but to look at the kind of things that are important for student success. I mean we're never going to be <coughs> capturing all competencies. I don't, I don't think any test should aspire to this because you end up, you know, um, you sacrifice uh, uh, bre- uh, depths for breadth and that's not really a good thing. You want to really assess what you do in great depths, and so you have to focus what you do. That's what Spiza is doing and also I also would like to say that you know Some people say, well, social skills are very important, and they're not equated with mathematical skills, but, you know, the absence of mathematical skills also doesn't imply the presence of those other skills. So there is actually very, very good evidence, also from longitudinal studies now, that the competences that people have on PISA at age 15 are highly predictive for the successful transition from school to work, from school to higher education, and so on. we have done longitudinal studies in countries like uh, Canada, Australia, Uruguay, Switzerland, and they all tell you the same story, that basically those skills that are measured are not everything, but they're highly predictive for student success.
0: I think a lot of people were surprised at Chang performance performance uh, on the 2009 PISA in part because we think of Chinese education as rote learning, and the test is obviously intended to do more than just measure rote learning. Can you explain a little bit about why that performance you think was so high?
1: Well, you know, I think um, China is a great example of an education system that has evolved a lot faster than many others in the world, and also a lot faster in embracing advanced pedagogical models, uh, fostering creative thinking among students. You know, what's very interesting when you look, for example, at the reading results, 2009, you have um, Shanghai and you have uh, Chinese Taipei, Taiwan. And basically, they share the same culture, they say a similar education system and so on, but Shanghai has put a lot of emphasis on students' sort of capacity to apply, to use knowledge. In uh, Taipei, you have a much more traditional Chinese model of education. And actually, what you see is while Shanghai comes out right on top, uh, Chinese Taipei comes just about a little bit above the OECD average. So actually, it's not culture. It's not sort of. And and, and, and I think many people have underrated the capacity of Shanghai's education system to, to move with great emphasis towards fostering the kind of skills that, that um, uh, enables students to be creative thinkers. I mean,
2: Shana, it's
1: actually very interesting. It's a, it's a great example of a country that does well on the content part. You know, students know about uh, uh, mathematical procedures, mathematical uh, <coughs> uh, methods, uh, but they're also very, very good in using them creatively, which distinguishes them from many other East Asian nations.
0: So I'm interested in how much you feel that the test, uh, uh, the graphs I love in your presentations, and I've put several videos in that Mighty Bell space for those who are listening, but the graphs that I loved were the ones that showed the change over time. So obviously change Mm -hmm. is taking place. So how much of that change is change that you're just documenting, and how much do you think that PISA itself is impacting change?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. You know, it's always sort of, going to be very hard to to disentangle that, but there's clearly interesting cases. You know, I'm in my own country. uh, I'm German, and uh, in Germany, Pisa, in the year 2000 really caused a major uh, uproar. You know, you could basically go to every person on the street and they would know about it. Uh, It was because the country was confronted with an educational reality that didn't correspond to its image of its own education system. So basically, people believed you know education is fine, we've uh, spent a lot of money on education and so on. And then they saw the results. And then they saw that they were an average performer and they saw that also the impact of social background on student success was uh, exceptionally strong. And that again contradicted people's expectations because they thought, you know, we give every teacher the same salary, we put uh, give every student the same resources, so how can it be that success is, inequ- or that the educational system is so inequitable? But it also sparked a lot of initiative. You know, I mean the federal government raised its spending on education by 40 percent. Um, teachers agreed to work one hour more. Uh, there was a lot of emphasis in effort similar like the Common Core Standards in the United States. Germany developed uh, national standards, which was unprecedented because, like the U.S., it's a federal country. So a lot of things really happened. And uh, what you can see is, uh, nine years later, the results were, were were rather good. There was a lot of improvement, both on the outcomes, but also, and that was even more remarkable, Germany was, for example, able to halve the gap between immigrant and non-immigrant students because a lot was done about those kind of things. You know, we're never going to find out you know, exactly how much of those changes have driven the learning outcomes, but the fact that so much has happened is remarkable. Or you go to Japan, the other part of the world. You know, One of the interesting things in Japan was uh, in the year 2000, they actually did quite well on PISA. And this relates to your case on Shanghai. They were actually looking at the results very closely and they asked themselves, yeah, you know, we do well on the reproduction of subject matter content on rote learning, but we are not really doing well on the tasks requiring students to produce answers, to respond to open ended tasks. They worked a lot on that. And they basically put a lot of uh, emphasis on fostering those kinds of skills. And you know, nine years later, Japan has been the country with the with the most significant pro- progress on students uh, students responding to open-ended tasks. So that, there are many examples like this, where you can actually see countries have made an effort and have seen major improvements. Korea, uh, yet another example. Korea did also well in the year 2000, but they actually said to themselves, you know, we do well on average, but we don't have a strong elite. Um, they had. 9% of students at the top level of PISA, which is similar to the United States. And the reason why they did so much better than the United States overall was not at the top end of the distribution, but because they had very few poor performers. So they said to themselves, you know, we really need to be better at the top end of the distribution. And They worked on that and in, in, in nine years time they were able to double the share of students at levels five and six on the PISA test. So There are really powerful examples of countries that have used evidence and data to guide the development of policies, and not only to develop those policies, but they were actually able to implement them successfully.
0: So I I don't think it would be controversial to say that the United States hasn't shown that kind of change over the course of PISA. Um, You spent a lot of time in the United States. Can you tell us some of the reasons you think it might be harder for us to do that kind of uh, analytical shifting that you've described in these other countries?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I, I must say uh, it, the PISA 2009 assessment got quite a bit of attention, and I also think that um, Secretary Duncan at the federal level and many people at state levels have really been very, very active in sort of using those results. But if you think of the years before, you know, PISA two thousand, visa two thousand three, visa two thousand six, they actually got comparatively less or a little attention compared with other countries. Uh, we've also heard sort of a lot of very defensive reactions, you know, people telling us, well, you know, it's because the United States has more child poverty. By the way, not true. Because the United States has so many immigrants, also not demonstrated by the data. And there were a lot of sort of efforts being made to sort of explain or take the results or or find justifications for the results as they are. By the way, none of them hold up to any scientific scrutiny. But there was pretty much uh, a reaction, whereas I think in recent years, people are looking at this more seriously and have actually, I mean, you know, the establishment of uh, common core standards that are quite well internationally benchmarked is certainly something that came out of the uh, the PISA assessment in 2006 and so there are actually steps taken to make education uh, more globally oriented i think that you can you can say it but it's a far more recent development uh, it's something that we saw a bit after 2006 and a bit more after 2009 but clearly not comparable with what we have seen in many other countries. Education systems in many other countries are probably more outward looking, that is, the idea of international benchmarking is more important to them and also more common.
0: Is there any connection between how tightly integrated policy is with the political process? Do countries that have a separation between the political process and their education uh, research and development tend to to be able to make change faster?
1: I don't think uh, you can generalize that easily. I mean, you do have countries uh, that um, where you basically see education is depoliticized, you know. There's a broad consensus in the country across the political spectrum of what is important and how to pursue those goals. You look at Denmark, you look at Norway, you look at fi- Sweden, Finland. Uh, the Nordic countries in Europe, I think to some degree, you can say that also about Canada. It's a country which is sort of really sort of working step by step, coherently to improve uh, its performance. Um, many of the successful East Asian countries, Singapore in particular, but you could also uh, consider Japan, um, they're also highly consistent. They they work on education, but not in a political way. They They basically detach education pretty much from the day-to-day political process. Um, so I think there are examples like that, um, <coughs> but I don't think it's 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 universal. You find really what what you do see in high-performing education systems generally is that they place a strong, a high value on education in general. That is, every child knows that good performance in school is important. Every parent knows this. Every teacher analysis and everybody invests towards this goal and in particular in Asia you can't buy yourself in a high performing university you only get there if you have a great school degree you can see this nerd in tough exams at the end of schooling so there are sort of it's those kinds of it's the value that societies place on education and the commitment they made to this that is probably more directly connected with results and the type of political process but that said, sort of, yeah, it's I'm
0: very hard to catch those things. Well, certainly that relates to leadership, and I'm going to go there in a minute with you. But before I do so, I, I said that that I, that I took away a couple of maybe that are maybe meta lessons, lessons that extend beyond the specific lessons, but are, are, are broader. One being that part of the, what the data shows us is that change can happen. Another thing I heard you mm-hmm. saying over and over again is that this isn't geography and it's not culture that the, the education systems can change uh, irregardless of a lot of other circumstances.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, if you look to Poland, for example, one of the most rapidly ed- improving education systems in Europe, you know, they didn't actually invest more. They, they, they started to do things differently. They didn't change their culture. They didn't fire their teachers. You know, they worked with the resources they have, with the cultural assets they have, and actually leverage them more effectively. And that's something I would argue is true for most countries. You know, Shanghai's or China's success in general is very recent. It's a very recent phenomenon. The culture they have is hundreds and, or, a, a thousand year old. And it's, every country has its own cultural assets. And it's the question of how you use and deploy those, those assets that count a lot more than basically just coming from a specific culture. I mean, you know, the Asian culture probably makes it easier to uh, put a greater premium on education because education is sort of culturally revered. But, you know, um, a country like Finland may, may not have had that asset, but it's created it. And um, <clears throat> in that sense, I think the fact that results change is a very powerful demonstration that, you know, those re- results are not written in stone. The same is true for social background. You know, we can say, what, well, you know, Poverty is destiny, but the matter of fact is that in some countries, social background influences success a lot more than in other countries. So it tells us again that, you know, you can do something about it. Maybe not just education policy, but public policy can do a lot to moderate the impact which cultural or social background has on the success of individuals. And again, I find this a very, very important and powerful lesson from PISA from, from because it tells us that, you know, um, there's no... Space for uh, complacency. The kind of challenges and problems that we face are solvable and have been solved by, if not by our own country, by other countries. You know, take take about um, look at um, Korea in the 1960s. Korea had the standard of living of Afghanistan today and one of the least developed education systems. Now they could have they could have given you every reason why they should be and remain a poor performing education system. They had no money, they had no resources, they had no great teachers, but they turned things around and uh, became one of the most successful education systems in the world.
0: Yeah, the Korea story is really powerful. Um, How important is it for an education system or a country to be able to address socioeconomic diversity?
1: Well, you know, what's interesting is that you don't find any Top-performing education system that has not all that, that has not also been successful in addressing inequalities. You know, um, we often think in terms of a quality-equity trade-off. You know, we say, well, if you do if you want to do really well, you need to accept that there's going to be large disparities. But actually, that's not borne out by the PISA results. You know, again, in Europe, in uh, Asia, in North America, those systems that do well do well on both quality and equity. But there's more to this. I mean this is not just to come out well on PISA. The uh, one of the things that our data on on um, on, a, on adults show very clearly is that um, those at the high end of the skill distribution, high end of the skill distribution have better and better life prospects. Those at the bottom end of the skill distribution face rapidly deteriorating life prospects. And that basically tells us that, you know, inequalities have always existed. They probably will always exist, but their consequences, their social and economic consequences today are a lot more serious than they have been in the past. and That's why achieving equity in school, which is the foundation for equity in life, is so important. It seems
0: like there's a really significant tie between the commitment to equity and the belief that all children are capable of success. Um that that do those two really need to go together?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a third element and that is basically to have the same level of ambition for all children. And that's something that uh we we try to measure again at Visa, you know, we look at the perspective of students, you know, do they believe that their teacher really knows what they can do, that they expect the same? We look at this through the data of of, of teachers. We look at this through school marks. And, you know, the United States is unfortunately an example where you can actually see that, um, you know, socially disadvantaged children usually have teachers that have lower expectations for them. You know, basically that's how we exasperate that kind of relationship. It's having strong expectations, believing that every child can achieve. And supporting children individually, the, 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 the approach to personalized learning. You know, Again, you go to Finland, why don't they have poor performance? It's not because there's no poverty in society. There's as much poverty in the Finnish society as you can find it in, in many countries in the world. But the, every Finnish teacher, every Finnish school has 30% of instruction time outside the classroom settings, which the school can use to support students that need special sort of support, and that may be students with, from disadvantaged backgrounds or it may be students with special talents that uh, are not met in regular classroom settings. So it's having high expectations is believing in the success of all children and having the means and instruments in the school uh, actually to address inequalities. That's really um, the attribute of most high-performing education systems. The methods they use are very different. But the, 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 these kind of paradigms are very, very common.
0: I'm not sure most people would recognize the degree to which beliefs about individual capacities or capabilities are reflected in the kinds of statements that you talk about, say, with regard to math. Uh, you think you mentioned that students in Japan have, feel there's a high correlation between their own work and success in math, whereas in the United States, it's very common for someone to say, I'm just not good at math.
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the most interesting findings, you know, um, when you ask students in uh, in PISA, you know, what is attributed to success in math? You do have sort of three groups. You have many students in Europe who will tell you, well, it's all heritage. You know, my father was a plumber. I'm going to be a plumber. I'm not going to be math. You have students in the United States who basically all believe, you know, this is inborn talent. You know, if I'm not a genius in math, I should better study something else. Whereas you know, nine out of ten Japanese tell you it depends on the on on my own effort that I'm going to invest, and I trust my teachers to support me, and that tells you a lot about the education system. Those responses from students tell you a lot about the system that is behind them. If you go to the example of Japan or China, you know that every student knows you know there's no excuse for me. Social background is not an excuse, but at the same time, my teacher is going to do everything help me succeed so I think those are very interesting way Th- these student responses tell you a story about you know what wh- what's behind them in terms of an education system and um, <coughs> the merit the high degree of meritocracy in in Asia the high degree of uh, individual teacher support you know one of the things that are so interesting about those systems and in fact it's again true for most high performing education systems that they have very few means of stratification. There are very few devices where teachers can put the blame to someone else. You know, in Europe, grade repetition is very common. You know, as a teacher, you can say at the end of the school year, you know, I didn't succeed with the student. Let another teacher deal with it next year. The students would do the same thing again. It's a device where, which is very convenient for teachers. In North America, you have all sorts of tracking forms of tracking. Again, you know, where you can say as a teacher, well, you know, this student isn't good, uh, I'm doing the right lesson, I've got the wrong students, let's put that student somewhere else. Whereas in the high-performing education system, those devices generally do not exist. That is, you as a teacher are really called upon to address the kind of weaknesses and strengths that uh, students has and, and do something about it. So the, the, the responsibility is squarely put on teachers and schools and they live up to that.
0: So one of the themes that came out in talking with Posse Salberg was the ability for students to start making decisions early and kind of be in charge of their own or responsible for their Mm -hmm. own education. Um, How much has Mm -hmm. this come out?
1: Yeah, we have actually very little data on that. Um, So I can't really comment on this from uh, from our data, but you can actually see that um, this idea of self-regulated learning, the idea that you have to sort of set your own learning goals that you are responsible for meeting them you know I mean uh, Finland is an example and a probably probably better example is Sweden you know at the end of the school year you don't simply get a grade but uh, you meet with the teacher and your parents in this parent-teacher-student dialogue and uh, everybody thinks you know what can I do in the next school year to do better than 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 what I did before, and and the interesting thing of the aspect of this parent teacher student dialogues is that the only thing you're not allowed to do is to complain about someone else, you know as a teacher, you're not allowed to complain about the student as a parent, you're not allowed to complain about the teacher, but everybody has to think about you know what can I do to make things better, and so it puts a lot of responsibility on the learner to actually progress it
0: does feel though that there's this parallel between. Uh, how we treat teachers and how we treat students. If we're shifting from accountability systems to encouragement or encouraging systems, right, that in both cases we're uh, kind of shifting how we've thought about those roles.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think uh, accountability is a very complex concept, and um, I don't think you find a lot of administrative accountability in high-performing education systems, they are a lot stronger on natural accountability. That is, you know, you as a teacher are responsible to your profession, you are working with your neighboring teacher, you report to them, they visit their classrooms, they have professional learning communities. It's actually probably a lot tougher on teachers than it is than the kind of administrative accountability, no? test-based accountability, because, you know, you work in a school where every teacher knows what you're capable of doing and where you struggle. No? But it's a system where basically the profession, it's a, it's a, it's a professional form of accountability, where uh, transparency in the work process, a professional work organization um, are, are the driving force, not an industrial work organization, you know, where teachers are regarded as exchangeable widgets on an assembly line. You know? I mean, that's sort of, this, this professional versus industrial work organization is a very important um factor that distinguishes the most advanced education systems from others.
0: So you also mentioned the importance of leadership and leaders who can convince their citizens to make the choice to value education over some other form of consumption or expenditure. Um, Are there other Mm -hmm. lessons about leadership that you feel have come out of your experiences with PISA?
1: Yeah, you know, leadership again has many dimensions, and uh, it is expressed at, uh, at different levels. Uh, leadership at the system level, you know, I mean, <laughs> the the case of Ontario that we have used a lot, uh, is actually, you know, system leadership was a driving force. So you had a premier, premier Dalton McKinty, you know, who made education a priority who got the players together, who improved the relationship between the teaching profession and government and got a lot of things done. And Nate, Ontario, one of the world's top performing education systems. You, you can pretty much sort of see this as an example of system leadership. You have other countries where system leadership may not be that strong, but where school leaders play a very, very important role in the education system. You have school leaders with a high degree of instructional leadership, school leaders who bring the teachers together, who advance the teaching professional, organized high-level professional development for their teachers, who basically provide career perspectives for their teachers. So it, leadership is expressing itself at different levels of the education, but it's always a very, very important paradigm. You know, there nothing, no education system evolves by its own. It requires people, you know, are willing to take risks, who are set ambitious goals, who move the system forward. And um, that's basically, it's a very, very important attribute for, for education, I, I, I would think for, for for any any sector of society. You know. So one
0: one of the common perceptions we have is that there are that that spending more money will make a difference. Uh, it feels like that's sort of clearly dem- dem- demonstrated as not being necessarily the the uh, impact, right?
1: Well, uh, the volume of money only explains about. Twenty percent of the performance differences that we see across countries. so how much you spend is not sort of so clearly related to outcomes. How you spend your money a lot clearer like for example, we see that high performing systems tend to prioritize the quality of teachers over the size of classes. for example, if you if you if you look at the United States, what has driven the dramatic rise in in spending per student over the last decade? it's basically the effort of policy makers to make Class is smaller, which is something you get very popular with. You know, parents like it, teachers like it, uh, and so on. But it's not particular. It's not a smart spending choice in general. And most high-performing systems policymakers have done the reverse. They have generally, generally, sort of put their premium on attracting the most talented people into the profession by deploying their resources to ensure that talent is matched to the challenges. I mean, that's this is another dimension when you look at the United States. It's one of the few countries where spending is still regressive. That is, uh, the more privileged students have access to better teaching resources. If you go to Shanghai and China; they don't spend very much on education, but they make sure that they attract the most talented teachers into the most challenging classrooms. So again, it's the the volume of money. I don't want to deny that it's important. Sure, you know, without money, you don't get education, but uh, how you leverage the resources, how you deploy them across the school systems, how you de- deploy them across different uh, resource factors like teachers and class sizes and working time and teaching time. Those things uh, are a lot more important than total volume. And that's actually one of the things that I find really important because also what this actually shows and what the PISA data shows is that the world is no longer divided into a rich and well-educated nations and poor and badly educated ones. In fact, you know, uh, that's something that we learned. We learned it as a hard lesson at the OECD. You know, when we started PISA, we started with the OECD countries, and then sort of everybody assumed these are the rich countries, so they're going to do well. And then when PISA expanded beyond OECD membership, we suddenly found that actually many of the world's top-performing education systems are not part of the rich world's club. And I think that's been a very important lesson for many countries.
0: Talked about the difference in uh, sc- uh, sort of um, the difference between the low performing and the high performing countries, and how that could be translated into equivalent number of years of schooling. So you said that Poland raised their performance the equivalent of a school year without spending more mm-hmm. money. How big is that gap? And at the end, at the age of fifteen, how much of a difference is there between students in these countries?
1: Well, the difference is is, is huge. You know, you talk about, uh, if you look across the OECD world, you have almost six years of six school years at the age of 15 that separate the top from the lowest performing country. And, you know, in in many countries inside the country, the gap is is even larger than that. So, uh, it is really remarkable, you know, uh, that uh, people at the age of 15 come out so Differently, well prepared for 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 the future in different education systems. It matters a lot where you grow up in in terms of how well you are prepared for for future success. So, um, we I would not have probably in, I would not have expected to see uh, that uh, that that extent of variation both within and also between countries. What? Even that resources usually are not as 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 disparate now.
0: Understood. At one point, you even mentioned sort of the the dollar figure, the lost productivity of having students who are so far behind. Where would you get that kind of a figure?
1: Yeah, you know, the um, Hoover Institute at Stanford University has actually done some really interesting analysis, basically estimating the long-term economic impact by doing growth regressions. They have basically projected the PISA data into the past, uh, complementing them with other uh, similar tests, and then building sort of a time trajectory, and then they did did, uh, sort of um, growth modeling based on endogenous um, uh, growth theories. And they find, for example, that if you would only raise performance by 25 points, for example, and that's more or less what a country like Brazil or Poland have been achieving over the last years, uh, the long-term economic value of that would be in the order of 115 trillion dollars in the OECD area, which, so if you look at this order of magnitude, it really tells you that poor performance in education is really equivalent to a permanent economic recession. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, this is a little bit of money loss, but the losses that economies incur because they don't do a particularly good job in schooling are phenomenal. I mean, the, the, the cost of improvement is a tiny fraction of the money that economies lose because of for performance
0: no. We're getting close to the end here. Uh, um, we're going to have a, a couple of minutes with Honor Mormon from the Asia Society when we finish. And we do finish on time, as a courtesy to our guests. If you have a question for Andreas, I've got one more for him. Uh, feel free to put it in the chat, and we'll try and get to as many of those as we can. Andreas, you talk about main reform trajectories. Um, do you want to describe what that means?
1: Yeah, basically these are patterns of change that we observe and that are sort of not so specific to a, a country's context. Basically, um, trajectories of reform where you can draw policy lessons for other countries. The kind of things, you know, when if a country changes a certain set of parameters and then we look at um, <coughs> the, the intended reforms, the ideas, the implemented reforms, what they've actually done and then the achieved reforms and what we see reflected in the results.
0: Mark asks a question which I think ties well into that, and if you have a question for Andreas and you put it in the chat earlier, I will not have seen it, so feel free to post it again. Uh, Andreas, Mark wants to know, to what extent does a participating country discuss its results with PISA? What is the nature of that discussion?
1: Well, you know, um, that's really up to every country. The results uh, put in the, into the public domain. Many countries organize national fora when they launch their results. Usually ministers are involved in that debate. Uh, often the profession gets really involved in this. I mean, I've been invited, for example, by in many countries also to buy teacher unions who were very interested in to see the, uh, that kind of analysis. Uh, but it varies. You know, that's up to every country to think about how these results can be put to the most productive use. How are
0: countries talking to each other?
1: Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. I mean, um, uh, I remember still my first meeting of ministers at the OECD where, you know, before PISA, you had the OECD countries' ministers of education sitting around a table and then, you know, Everybody telling you, you're, well, we have got the greatest education system in the world, you know, and if we have a little problem left, last year we put a reform in place to solve that problem. So but there was actually very little dialogue across countries, and that is very, very different now. When countries meet, actually, they always ask themselves, you know, how did you, did you achieve this, and how did you address that kind of problem? They have a co- – Peter has provided countries with a common language. If you ask yourself, you know, how many people have been visiting Finland or uh, Shanghai, you know, there's been a lot of professionals trying to look for themselves, study good results. There's been a lot of uh, books written about this. So I think the exchange that data has sort of initiated has been uh, very, very encouraging. I mean, education really has become a global business in the sense that we, you know, no longer uh, think you know, every education system is unique. And all along, I look inward. But there's a lot of sort of an outward-looking attitude. And we can see that very clearly in the, in the international dialogue at the OECD that is very much fed and is inspired by comparative analysis now.
0: That seems really significant to me. Krista uh, wants to know that you said that instruments are needed in the schools that address inequalities. What are these instruments specifically?
1: Well, you know, they start uh, with resource allocations. Many countries put a lot of attention to uh, devote uh, additional teachers, better teachers in schools with greater needs. Um, they, uh, they relate to the way in which uh, schools use their resources for students with disadvantage. I mentioned the example of Finland. A lot of instruction time devoted by the school to learning outside the classroom settings. Uh, if you go to Shanghai, for example, many people ask how, in, a, in a such a country with such such huge social inequalities, how can that country achieve so equitable outcomes? Well, it is because it gets the best teachers into the toughest classrooms, on the best principals for difficult schools. If you are vice principal in a high-performing school in Shanghai and you want to become a principal, the system will tell you yes, you can do that, but first. You show us that you can turn around a low-performing school. So high-performing and low-performing schools are paired. There's a, it's a very systematic approach to actually tie the resources to the challenges in many many of the education systems in Sweden. Um, if you are an immigrant student, you get better resources, you get better language support in a in a, over a very short period of time, but very intensively. And um, that basically, it's it's all to do with you know how you. Allocate and leverage resources. How you get really the best people into the kind of classrooms and, and schools that where they can make most of a difference.
0: Andres, this has been fascinating. Really appreciate your work. Appreciate the time you've taken tonight. I'm going to turn the time over now to honor, who will close.
1: Thanks so much,
2: Steve. On behalf of Asia Society's Partnership for Global Learning, we just wanted to thank you for hosting this really interesting conversation and a very special thanks to Andreas for your expertise and um, all this uh, really interesting information. In addition to uh, taking a look at the OECD website, uh, we hope that folks in the audience um, will make use of the resources that we have available on the Asia Society education uh, page of the website. And in particular, in relation to tonight's talk topic, um, we think you might be interested in the work that's been happening with our Global Cities Education Network initiative. So um, uh, similar to looking at it uh, from a country level perspective, um, we've had some Uh, education representatives from different cities working together to share uh, best practices. And you can find uh, some reports on their work uh, from this page. I'm putting the links in the chat now as well. And then um, in general, uh, we just want to tell you a few more things we have coming up and invite you to join us. One is our annual conference happening this summer. in. New York City in June. Uh, registration is open. So please uh, share that information with your colleagues and uh, come participate in person if you can. Um, in the future, so if you're watching the recording of this, you hopefully will uh be able to find our new website, PGL Online, that will be launching soon. And um, if you haven't already been reading, We would love for you to look for our global learning blog on Education Week. And uh, you can use Twitter and Facebook to stay in touch and uh, see what we're doing. And we're really excited to have partnered with the future of education on these last couple of webinars. And again, thanks so much to Andrea Schleicher for uh, being the featured guest tonight. Good night, everybody.
0: Thanks, Honor. Andreas has left, but thanks to him as well. Um, Take care, everybody. The way this works is the recording will process once uh, you've left the room. Everybody has to actually have left the room. So I'm going to turn the recording off and then ask you if you wouldn't mind the exit. Take care. Bye now.